They have 30 years experience leading advanced analytics and AI, which is another way of saying they're old. They have tackled hundreds of major programs and projects, which is probably why they're bald. <laughs> they are working in retirement to help America win the global AI competition, which is to say that their views are their own. This is AI for Leaders by AI Leaders. Practical, to-the-point content helping you drive results with AI. Here's Chris and Frank. Welcome to the AI for Leaders podcast. I'm Frank Strickland. I'm Chris Whitlock. Chris, before we dive into this week's episode, want to let our listeners know that we have a free resource available to them at our website, AILeaders.com. And it is a resource, a document that will help them mitigate a phase of the AI project process uh, that is a tremendous risk. And it is a risky area that is not covered in any other uh, AI process approach. So if you go to our website, AILeaders.com, uh, you can get that as our free gift to you. Hopefully it'll be helpful to you. So Chris, we are going to talk about a mission area uh, and some potential implications for AI and autonomy stemming from this mission area. And it's a really interesting mission area. It's very personal to you and I because it's how we got our start uh, in the military. Both of us uh, were recruited, uh, you initially into the Navy, me into the Marine Corps, uh, as enlisted uh, sailor in your case, Marine in my case. And so military recruiting is a tremendously important mission area. Uh, tell our listeners a bit about that mission area. Uh, well, just experiencing it, but as well for those that are parents or not immediately in the military environment, uh, we bring on tens of thousands of young Americans every year. Uh, the majority of those are just finishing high school, or they are relatively early in their career. They may be in their 20, early 20s, uh, typically, but the, the chief... Uh, cohort that is uh, highly desired are those who are finishing high school. And rather than pursuing uh, a college path or some civilian trade school path, they have an interest in service in the military. And we put uh, a substantial level of effort, both in the form of military recruiters and then in infrastructure, IT systems, um, military entrance processing stations, which will help to screen them medically. Uh, you could refer to it as academically and, and also uh, screen for potential moral hazards, moral risks, uh, young people who've gotten crosswise with the law or had other problems. But that's the recruiting process every year ingest, identify, screen, onboard tens of thousands of young Americans for each of the military services and then get them into what is referred to as initial entry training. So you might look at the number of high school graduates in the United States and that might look like a very large funnel, 
but the screening process is winnowing that down to a much smaller set of potential candidates based on a set of physical fitness standards, based on a set of intellectual academic standards, based on a set of moral character standards is what you're saying. Indeed, indeed. And it's it's unlike, I mean, we have been in a posture since the middle 1970s of an all-volunteer force. Uh, so we no longer have the draft, all-volunteer force. Uh, we're uh, looking for actively and trying to identify young people who want to serve, uh, at least for some period of time, doesn't have to be for a career, and then screen them appropriately and track them to a job, um, meaning then put them on a track to a specific job uh, in the military. And very unlike, like uh, it's always been interesting to me in World War II, basically we took the entire high school classes at some level of 1942, 43, 44, and they were brought into service in the United States military. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, yeah. Now now we are talking about recruiting, uh, as spitballing, call it 150, 160,000 uh, young people a year into the active force as enlisted members, and then some number of officers each year. So it's a portion and, um, and it's challenging. And that ebbs and flows in the degree of challenge, but it's persistently a task that requires a lot of attention. And it's interesting, the implications that this is not just a sausage making factory of, okay, you know, how many soldiers, sailors, <laughs> airmen, Marine, guardsmen, you know, Space Force guardsmen, guardians, how many of those can we find and get jammed into the initial entry training? There is a much, if I use a fancy pants term, but it is applicable here, that there's a much more um, ecosystem of the military's relationship with American society, the longer term effects on society because many of these enlisted men, as you and I illustrate, you know, they come into the service, they, they go out, they go on to start companies, you know, become executives, et cetera. And so uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps uh, has recently written an article uh, that we're going to take a look at. And I'll ask you to talk about Chris, where he, he's addressing not only the challenge of the ingest and, and the quality, but also a lot of those complex dynamics, not only the society's relationship, but, but what the force needs in terms of types of recruits and types of occupational specialties, et cetera. So let, let me uh, share with our readers that article. I, I love the title of this article. So when I, I saw it come out, uh, I was immediately taken uh, just because I'm interested in innovation and whatnot. But recruiting requires bold changes. He published this in November. Uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps is a general, uh, Force our General Dave David Berger. Uh, all of the chiefs of the military services are fantastic and proven leaders. You will see them write uh, periodically, sometimes together, uh, sometimes on their own. But this uh, came out in the U.S. Naval Institute Journal Proceedings in November this year. 
and it outlines, uh, I thought, Frank, it was great in, in clarity, what's the challenge that we're struggling with? And for those that are less familiar, the Marine Corps classically of the, the four services before we would add the Space Force uh, or, or consideration of the Coast Guard, the, the Marine Corps would have the smaller of the recruiting targets. Even in 2022, even the Marine Corps had to put in the extra measure of effort to make the goal. They made goal or made mission, but it was a really challenging year. And he talks about some of the causes of that. And, you know, it's plain that a facet of what we are working through right now, and multiple of the other services have acknowledged this, is just job dynamics. Uh, overall, the labor market is changing. Uh, young people have a variety of opportunities. And when you take the range of opportunities that are there and then you screen against eligibility, who can we bring in? It's made for just a perpetual challenge. Yeah. Um, the services will meet them, uh, but it's with a lot of effort and sometimes by having to make uh, some uh, out of the ordinary compensations. Uh, so as an example, this past year, the Army always has the biggest one. And I think for fiscal year 2023, I forget, I think the Army is on for like 65,000 new soldiers. That means they haven't served before. They would be recruited coming out of high school or maybe out of college prior to completing it to serve as an enlisted member in the United States Army. A big uh, hiring six, you could just think of that in your business, for those of you who are in business, hiring 65,000 people in a single year, that's a big number. Big number, big number. And so classically, uh, the services have done everything that businesses might do, right? You have an online presence and that is getting increasingly sophisticated. Uh, you're engaging in the high schools uh, as fulsomely as you can, and you have local recruiting stations where you're assigning service members. So they're pulled out of their normal job, and for a couple of years, they do this really demanding one of working with young people who are potentially interested in joining, helping to screen them and helping them navigate the process. And, you know, Berger's observations uh, here if you read the article, which we would highly recommend, it is worth the time to read this. Some of these problems uh, have remediations that, you know, are well within the control of the DOD um, uh, around how we interact, the, how the DOD interacts with the nation uh, in explaining purpose and, and building trust. There are some things that need to be done potentially uh, to make these pathways more attractive. And he talks about training and, uh, you know, for me, and I don't know how it is for you, I, I have three children, two of mine have chosen military service. One is a, a firefighter. Uh, the, the educational benefits for those who choose military service are pretty amazing. Tremendous. Well, yeah. I mean, your own experience? Yeah. Um, both myself and then my son. Um, and, you know, p 
post 9-11 and with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, brought back some legislation, the Congress acted, the president signed, that brought back some of the increased uh, educational benefits uh, for military members, um, not all of which we had in my day. Um, but yeah, just a tremendous opportunity for someone uh, to learn and grow, um, to get undergraduate degrees, uh, move on into graduate uh, education, uh, just uh, tremendous opportunities. So, and he talks about that in this article, some things that can be done across the joint force. So all the services that might enhance uh, both the training while you're in service and the experience in service and then things that happen afterwards. Now, he talks a good bit about uh, what in the military is referred to as, as the retention challenge, uh, but keeping people on board who are currently members uh, and ensuring the kinds of options and, and experience there are attractive uh, for them. But what I mean, what you and I have talked about and what caught our eye is there are a couple of facets of this problem that do potentially lend themselves to AI-oriented applications when you look at this mission area. And what uh, uh, we won't talk about here are uses of AI to identify recruits uh, per se. There are some things that might be pertinent there in a marketing context or an engagement context. But I thought what was really interesting in Berger's approach to this was looking at demand. Can we use AI autonomy, uh, automation to reduce the demand signal for new military members? And then another thing that we have talked about is just executing that function, whether to reduce the demand signal for new military members or to make it easier to do the job of recruiting. There are some automation technologies that are AI enabled that could be pertinent uh, in both of those. Is that? Yeah, it does. And I, yeah, there's, um, I don't know if it was a Fed president um, that I'm about to quote, Chris, I, I apologize to our listeners, don't remember the person I'm going to quote, but um, it, it is a, a point about labor, about human labor that I think every leader needs to get in the forefront of their mind, and it's not necessarily there uh, today. We are living, you are leading in an era, multi-year, you are leading in an era of chronic labor shortfall, full stop. Um, we are not creating humans, the fertility rate uh, in the US uh, is about four basis points below the what is known as the replacement rate, the number of children that need to be born in order to maintain the population, just maintain the population. Um, and so what we have is just chronic shortfall in labor um, and that chronic shortfall while you know, right now we've sort of opened the aperture up and we're talking about that at a U.S. economic level. Well, that 
that includes the United States military and, and the United States national 100%. security. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's kind place. of truism, right? When the labor market is strong commercially, industrially in the United States, it's more challenging to recruit military members. Yeah. I think where you're going is, hey, that may be a persistent issue for the services. Is it's just it's a tighter market, and you're dealing with um, something that's not going to become remarkably easier. Uh, I think on top of that, Frank, and we don't have to get into this, but Jerome Berger does talk about, there's a term used in, in marketing and, and certainly in recruiting, propensity to serve uh, or propensity to buy. We've seen a decline in propensity to serve of some number of percentage points that will ebb and flow over time, but that's kind of linked to what other options do I have? Right? Do I do I have other attractive options? And then the other issue is simply those that have eligibility to serve. Uh, there are a number of current disqualifying factors for military service. Uh, there's debate on whether some of those could be changed usefully or loosened usefully, but they're legitimate and they've been put in place for reasons. Um, uh, those manifest physically in, in a variety of ways and, and otherwise. But if you push that to the side, to me, what I found really interesting was, and his pilot example is a good one. We've had a chronic shortage mm. on pilots. Yep. I thought it was really interesting. He took this in two directions in the article. One was, hmm, do we need to push the pedal down on creating technical solutions that don't require pilots, more autonomous aircraft? And that doesn't have to be a remotely piloted one, a quote unquote, an unmanned aerial system. It could be a potential autonomous aircraft. Hmm. That was one that he pulled. The other one I, I, I love as much, or maybe more, and that was, hey, why are we pushing warfighting concepts that require a lot of manned aircraft if that's difficult to generate? Maybe we need to rethink the concepts. And this, to me, is back to yeah, some of what Bob Work has a lot of passion about, defense innovation, changing strategies, warfighting concepts, et cetera. Well, a handmade into that is AI enablement and automation, but the two, they're viable angles. And he talks about both in the article, I think. Helpful. Yeah, there's an, there's an inner relationship there. Um, the um, data scientist or AI practitioners listening can, can think about the inner relationship between defining the problem, getting relevant data, and then matching it to uh, a modeling approach that will affect the problem with the relevant and available data. And in, in our book and in our teaching, we call that the iron triangle of data science. Well, similarly for the military, there are warfighting concepts, um, how the military wants to go about conducting uh, a certain warfighting mission in a certain geography. And those warfighting concepts are interrelated with force design. How am I going to design a force 
to execute that warfighting concept. And force design, you know, again, at a very high level, consists of material things like weapon systems uh, and people. Now, there's a much more detailed description of it, but for the purposes of this discussion. And so when you get into force design, you're now in an area where AI leaders ought to be getting into uh, in interactions with those in their military services and Department of Defense uh, around force design, around capability design, and, and looking for places where AI and autonomy uh, can potentially help. And, you know, Chris, you mentioned one that people would think of, rightfully so, as pretty sophisticated, you know, can can we create an autonomous bomber? Can we create an autonomous fighter jet? There are some, though, that really are on the other end of the spectrum uh, that are available today um, to do far less complex, highly repetitive, hands-on, high-touch labor tasks uh, that we still have a lot of humans do, especially in the administrative functions um, where there are uh, autonomous agents that could be helping to take that human labor out of those processes right now. Yeah, and I, I think that's some of the balance, right? When you're putting together a portfolio of AI-enabled initiatives that are a part of programs, you want to get enough progress here in the near term that you can confidently, reliably begin to buy down elements of the demand. And so it's not necessarily building the most exquisite autonomous aircraft that is the only solution. Um, simplify some of those areas. So yeah, there are a range of them. If you push the aircraft to the side, Frank, robotic process automation is a tremendous way to generate efficiency gains in just routine activities in the services today. Logistics related, um, maintenance related, financial, human capital, um, etc. This is a class of software, RPA, robotic process automation, which can create a platform for AI enablement or machine learning implementations in them. But take just a minute, orient people to uh, what you're showing there, Frank. So if if our listeners have not seen a Gartner Magic Quadrant, uh, it, it is, many of you have, some of you haven't though, it, it is a, a standard Gartner product that takes software solutions in a given area like robotic process automation or RPA, and it plots it on a two by two axis. Now, the underlying scoring is much more complex. Gartner has a wide range of criteria they apply to each one of these axes, but the X axis or the horizontal axis is looking at the completeness of vision for the, the, the provider, the company that's building the product. So how complete is their vision for this product space? And then the, the vertical axis or Y axis is scoring how, what is their ability to execute? What is their ability to deliver? And so you get these four quadrants. We won't go through all of them. Uh, you should go if you're not familiar with it, 
uh, Gartner Magic Quad because when you're evaluating software, uh, it's a useful and, and ready resource for you to take a look at for different types of software to include analytics and AI software. But you can see here in the RPI spa RPA space, you know, some of the leaders, that upper right quadrant. And so that would be products and companies that, that have a strong vision and have a strong ability to execute. And so, Chris, you know, in our businesses, the last big businesses we ran in analytics and AI, uh, we had a number of UiPath uh, implementations, for example. But you can see others, Blue Prism, Automation Anywhere. We use multiple of these software. Microsoft has a product, uh, NIC. And so these RPA software and, and the others, this is a proven space. Uh, these are software that can take a process like processing travel claims where you have a human being that is opening up a document, say a PDF file. They are checking certain things in a PDF file to see. Same thing every time. Yeah, every time. You know, is this filled out? Is it filled out properly? Okay, if it meets those two checks, and I'm simplifying, obviously, but if it meets those two, you know, checks and the detailed checks within those two, it's complete and it's accurate. Okay, now I'm going to take these elements of the form and I'm going to populate them into this database and I'm going to cause this action to happen in this financial system. You know, Chris Whitlock, I've looked at his expense report. I'm going to populate this into a database that keeps a record of Chris Whitlock's expenses. And I'm going to give an authorization to the financial system to cut a check to Chris Whitlock for the total expenses here of $2,200.72. Well, there is, and this is a technical measurement uh, in the South where Chris and I are from, there is a metric crap ton of that stuff that is going on in every branch, every division uh, in the national security enterprise, and it's being done by people. And so now back to, again, just that fundamental problem. Yeah, Frank, of, if, even before you leave that, just to clarify, the value of this to me is a human today might do the function you're talking about there, or it's a visa approval, or it's a parts ordering process. Mm. And they touch two, three, or four legacy systems in doing that task, right? What is the status? Oh, I need to check this also. Given that, now I do this in a third system. That's a very common human environment when you're interacting in these complex uh, processes, mission processes. RPA lays on top of all the legacy systems and it is replicating the role of the human. So rather than working in system A and now pivoting to system B and then going to system C, the robotic process automation tool will do that and it replicates the work of the human. So if it's routine, repetitive, and to a standard, you can implement this technology to include with machine learning or AI enablement 
to handle handwritten documents. I need to take a handwritten document input yeah. and convert that into uh, uh, text that can be machine readable. Um, uh, or I'm using a machine learning model to do part of the evaluation that a human would do on a set of parameters in a request or whatnot, but it lays on top of the legacy systems. So I don't have to rebuild them all, but you get a lot of progress quick and you reduce some of the workload requirements or recruiting demand requirements uh, to bring us right back around where we started. Yes, yeah, so you you have an opportunity with these software, which are are proven. Um, they are um, certified. Several of them to run uh, on government networks to include very high side, you know, TSSCI classified networks, um, and you have the opportunity to perform these repetitive high touch tasks with a piece of software. And again, in some cases, the software may do 85% of the work and you have a human doing 15%, but it's, it's really an opportunity to take that repetitive high touch labor off the backs of humans and take the human labor and apply it to something that, you know, uniquely. So in an intelligence context, just again, very high level to simplify, but people will get the directional uh, intent. You know, let's get intelligence personnel out of, you know, these financial processes and HR processes and clearance passing processes and a lot of this administrivia where the work can be done by software. And let's put those, that human labor capacity, uh, it may not be the same humans, but let's put the capacity into analysis and operations and places where we have shortfalls. Yeah. If I were closing this out, I think, and that to me is right on, we approach a mission area recruiting. We have an article here from Commandant of the Marine Corps that lays out the challenges. Some of those are addressable with AI enablement, but it does not all have to be the super exquisite high end, which he lays out some areas that would meet that criteria. There are things all the way to relatively pedestrian AI enabled implementations. All of it involves software. 100% of that involves software, but it does not all have to be the most sophisticated and exquisite solution in order to have pretty significant and material effects on the recruiting demand signal. So let's bring down the number that we need and let's be more efficient in performing the recruiting mission by using these technologies like robotic process automation in mm. order to improve it. Yeah, and that point about RPA being kind of, you know, it, it's, it's a commoditized area now. The software is proven, it's been out there for some time, kind of goes full circle with the mission point. Our objective as AI leaders is not to deploy sexy technology or make sexy models. That that we will do that, and we do do that sometimes. They're just eye-watering capabilities. Um, we've got a podcast episode you can go and check on Chat GPT um, and just some of the stuff that's being done in large language models. It's truly eye-watering. Um, but that's not our objective. Our objective is to help people with mission problems <laughs> and, and to make mission performance better. Fast. Yeah. And that's if, if that's a, if that, yeah. 
if Fine. that's low end tech, we're happy to do that. So I yeah. um, hope that is helpful to you uh, in leading AI. That's what we are about. Uh, if you go to our site, AILeaders.com, um, you can give us feedback on this episode. You can give us feedback on other topics uh, and or guests that you would like to see us address uh, in an upcoming episode of the podcast. Also at AILeaders.com, uh, you have that free resource available to you uh, for that risk um, high risk area of project implementation that we cover uh, that is not covered in any other AI um, process. And so go to siteaileaders.com. Um, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, give us a like. Uh, we would appreciate that. It helps get the word out. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, please rate and review. really helps to get the word out there. Uh, we want to have an impact on the national security enterprise by helping AI leaders. So until we get to the next episode, appreciate you. Indeed.